cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Strap yourself in for this one. Matt Ishbia runs United Wholesale Mortgage. Not only are they the biggest wholesaler in the country, they're also the number two overall mortgage lender. And he's got a fascinating uh, history uh, from being a walk-on at Michigan State uh, as a point guard to eventually being an assistant coach there to joining his dad's 12-person firm uh, that was doing mortgages uh, to just enjoying explosive growth because they were doing the right thing. They did not get suckered into all of the liar loans and all of the ridiculous um, no-income check, the ninja loans, no income, no credit rating, no job, all all that craziness uh, United Wholesale didn't participate in. And once the financial crisis ended, they just took over and became literally the biggest uh, mortgage wholesaler in the country. He's a fascinating guy. He's done some really interesting things. So enthusiastic about the business. When you see a company that approaches things in the right way, to watch them go from a 12-person firm uh, in 2004 to a 9,300-person firm, Today, it's it's really quite fascinating. You will see what I mean by his infectious enthusiasm and, and how much he is just so into running the company and, and, and how enamored he is about the entire mortgage business. It's hard to listen to this and not uh, become enthusiastic. So, so with no further ado, my conversation with United Wholesale Mortgage's CEO, Matt Ishbia. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Matt Ishbia. He is the CEO of United Wholesale Mortgage, the largest wholesale lender in the country and the number two overall mortgage lender. The firm has 9,000 employees and recently went public in the biggest SPAC ever. He is also the author of the book, Running the Corporate Offense, Lessons in Effective Leadership from the Bench to the Boardroom. Matt Ishbia, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here with you. So I got so much stuff to talk to you about, but I have to start with you were a walk-on point guard for the team that won the national championship 
uh, in college basketball. Tell us a little bit about that. How did playing for Coach Tom Izzo prepare you for the business world? Yeah, no, it was a great experience. You know, I wasn't that great of a basketball player. I was very good in high school, obviously. became a walk-on at Michigan State for uh, Coach Izzo, and, you know, a great experience. My first three years, we went to three Final Fours. We won a national championship. I got in the game when we were up by a lot, so I wasn't a star player by any means. But I learned so much about team, about work ethic, about camaraderie, about building something special, about having big goals and working for them. I learned so much during my time there. And I, some people ask me, well, what translates to business? I say, oh, I could talk for eight hours about that because everything <laughs> translates to business um, if, if you're paying attention and listening and learning. And so I had a great experience playing there um, and, and once again, winning the national championship, but just making lifelong friends and, and, and learning from Tom Izzo uh, for many of those years. And, you know, when you talk about you could speak for eight hours about this. I found the book, Fast, Easy Read, um, and there's it's really all about how the concept of competitive sports very much translates into lessons um, for the corporate world. So so let's make that shift to the corporate world. You you join the mortgage industry in, in 04 when your father offers you a job at United Wholesale Mortgage. Back then... The company was 12 people. T- tell us a little bit about your first entry-level job in the mortgage industry and, and memories from that period uh, of 2003-2004. Yeah, it was a great, great thing. You know, my, I was coaching. I played basketball for four years, but I got a chance to coach for a year, so I got to be on the bench sitting there with Tom Izzo, learning from him in meetings, and I got offered a college basketball job to be one of the youngest assistants or the youngest assistant in college basketball Division One at the time. I turned it down to, uh, because my father said, hey, maybe you can, you know, and Izzo said to me, actually, maybe you can take some of the things you learned in basketball and turn it tied to business, maybe do something bigger than being a head coach. And then my dad said, hey, I got a little mortgage company. My dad's a lawyer. He's never actually worked here at the mortgage company. He's just an like, entrepreneur. He has like seven or eight different businesses. This was a 12-person mortgage company in 2003. I joined as a 12-person, and uh, it's been a great experience all the way through. What I started at, though, was, the bottom job, everything. I used to say I did every job here, but I've got 9,300 people, so I can't do every job now. But I, I, back then, I took faxes off the fax machine. I learned underwriting. I learned closing. I learned everything from the bottom up. And really to understand not only our clients, but the consumers, consumers, clients, and our team members, and process. And so it's been a, it was really just great going all through, through that process. I had no desire, no idea, no ambition of saying, hey, let's build this to a 9,000-plus company. Number, I mean, we were just trying to make it, trying to survive at that point, and, uh, and that's what we were doing. And, and, but, you know, learning the business from the ground up was a huge advantage, and I still implement that with new people at our company to this day. Hmm. So, so let's talk a little bit about survival. Um, how did the firm weather the housing bust in the mid-2000s? Not long after you, uh, you joined, we saw the real estate market collapse. Yeah, no, so it was, it was definitely an interesting time to have joined. Um, what I would ex- speak about that is this. You know, back then we were so small, and we didn't really know what we were doing. We were trying to figure out things, but we didn't do a lot of those loans, subprime loans. So the whole point was back then we were just trying to make it. You know, I remember that I was a sales rep in 2006 or five, for my, and I remember calling my father one time and saying, hey, Dad, you know, we're doing 50 loans a month, and for a relationship, we're going to do 65,000 closings this month. So it's, it's a whole different world, right? We're doing 50 loans a month back then. And I remember telling my dad, I go, Dad, you know, if we did these types of loans, which are subprime, we could get a lot more business. I remember my dad saying to me, Matt, you know, we're not in here just to make money. 
we're not going to lend someone money if they can't pay it back. So lending someone $200,000 when their house is worth one we're just not going to do it. Now, we didn't make a big stand because they just went somewhere else and got the loan done. Right. But we never did the subprime loans. And so when those subprime loans all started crashing in 07, 08, 09, you know, we were, you know, take a thing of the old movie Forrest Gump. We were like bubble gum shrimp. We were like one shrimp boat left standing. Like we were just doing the right type of loans, focused <laughs> on FHA and conventional. And we really grew because everyone else was worried about the problems that they, they had all these loans. And we had never done those. And so I, I look at it as we didn't really struggle. That actually was a catapult to our success by doing the right thing and the do-right mentality. It didn't work real right in 0405, 06, when everyone has record years in mortgage, and we were not having those years because we weren't doing those types of loans. But it, we, 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 it came back our way in 08, 09, and, and ever since, doing the right type of loans for the right borrowers. So post-financial crisis, the firm begins to expand and thrive. When did you take over as CEO? So I, I was running the company probably starting in about 08, 09, officially, you know, CEO, maybe 2012 or 13. But th- those years, you know, running the business, trying to build the company to the point where we went to. And the final thing was we had a small retail division. And when I became the CEO in 2000, uh, early 2013, I think, uh, the, the key was I made a couple decisions at that point, which was we're not doing retail Retail is when you know is, is not as good for consumers, is not as good for loan officers. So I actually cut a department and I moved them all to our wholesale channel, and basically reran the wholesale business. Now we didn't let anyone go; we just moved them, reallocated them to new teams, and we really started exploding from then. So let's fast forward a little bit to last year, last spring of 2020. The global economy is shutting down, and the Federal Reserve comes out. Not only do they cut rates to near zero, they commit to purchasing unlimited, quote-unquote, unlimited amounts of mortgage securities towards the end of March 2020, and naturally mortgage bond prices skyrocket. You guys, like a lot of other wholesalers, you would hedge interest rate risk, and suddenly, with these skyrocketing rates, you're facing margin calls and a cash crunch. Tell us about that early pandemic period and how the Fed impacted what you were trying to do in terms of your balance sheet. Yeah, obviously, you know, the, the, talking about COVID and, and what happened where with the Fed and everything. First off, there's no playbook for COVID. You know, no one had it like in their right. books, like, what do you do with COVID comes in? How do you handle it with the Fed? You know, it's unprecedented times, un, unheard of, crazy things happen. But when that stuff happened, you know, the way we solve for it is we work as a team. You know, it's all, it goes back to the core of, Teamwork, working together, figuring out how do we solve for different issues. And a lot of those things were short-term concerns, but the whole economy was shut down. You know, I, I'm real big on our culture and our team, and we have 9,300 people here, and we all work here every day in the same location. We have about 1.5 million square feet, and we're all working in the building together. Sending everybody home was a big challenge because I never planned for work from home because that's not what we believe in here. And at the same time, the, the, you know, people worry about their health, which is a scary thing. You didn't know what was going on. There's a lot of scary things going on. The Fed doing what the Fed did. A lot of crazy things happened, but we came out of it stronger. Right? We figured out, okay, how do we band together, figure out what to ha- how to handle the balance sheet concerns, the, the, the Fed with rates lowering operational concerns, then people work from home, technology concerns, and not only did we manage through it, we thrived. And that was a big part of our story and success, you know, is, hey, you're, you, everyone can do things when things are going well. What happens when things, you kind of get sucker punched a little bit with COVID, right. and how do you survive and thrive? And that's what we did, and we had them having our best year of all time, not only from a volume perspective, but, um, but a margin perspective and a profit perspective. 
And at the same time, one of the things that's key to our business is culture and team and family. And when the pandemic hit, no one knew what was going to happen. I didn't know. You didn't know. Nobody knew what was going on. And I told our whole team at that point, and he said, listen, guys, we will not lay off one person. Not one person will be laid off at our company. I've got your back. You've got my back. Don't worry about your job. We'll make it through this stronger. And obviously, it turned out to be a record year. But the point was, we showed family first. I said, you can't lay your brother off. So we don't lay each other off. We're family. And I think that resonated with our team members to the point where they said, hey, listen, he's all in with me. I'm all in with him. Let's go dominate. And that helped catapult us to a record year last year. And, and we're planning on doing more business this year. Huh. That's quite, that's quite fascinating, especially considering how much uh, real estate transactions plummeted, at least in the first half of the year, came back in the second half of the year. But I want to stay with your balance sheet. So you're, you're looking at a little bit of a cash crunch, and you reach out to the bankers at Goldman Sachs and say, hey, I want to shore up our capital reserves because we think there's opportunities coming. Tell us a little bit about that process and, and what the final uh, resolution was. Yeah, so when, when that happened, you see that you know, cash is king in any business. And so you have a couple hundred million dollars to run your business, and you say, gosh, we, we, we're, we're competing. Like, we're the number two overall lender. The people we're competing with are you know, Rocket Mortgage, Wells Fargo, Chase, and Bank of America. That's the top five. These are not little companies I'm competing with. And we said, gosh, what's the advantage they have? They have access to liquidity and capital that I just don't have. You know, this is, I owned 100%. You know, me and my, my brother and dad owned some percent, but there was no private equity. We had no investors in with us. It was just, you know, we built this thing from scratch. And so we said, how do we make sure that we have the balance sheet and capital to compete with the biggest companies? Because we think we have the best platform and the best technology, but I, I, I have to have the cash and liquidity sources to do so. And so met with some people and we ended up going through the process of going through a SPAC and becoming a public company, which basically made it so that we have access to the same liquidity. We can monetize some of the things we've done, but it wasn't about getting money out for me or for our company because I still own, after the whole thing, I still own 94% of the company. The whole point was putting us on a platform that I have access to these bankers, access to the liquidity, access to being on a level playing field. Put me on a level playing field and let's compete head-to-head, and we'll see what happens, and that's what we're doing right now. When cybercriminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Yeah, I see that that competitive basketball nature is very much uh, in evidence with you and to put put some flesh on the bone so not only was this the biggest spec ever you guys floated like uh, four or five percent of the company meaning you still own the vast majority of it uh and so on paper you're you've suddenly become one of the wealthiest people in the country that has to be kind of a a shocking thing to to realize hey we were nervous and wanted to shore up our balance sheet 
and then this happens. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like. Yeah, you know, that was obviously something that was new to me. You know, it's not like our company, you know, our company valuation of $16.1 billion when we went public. And, and me, you know, that wasn't – the company didn't get the valuation or didn't grow when we went public. We That's what we've been the whole time. But the going public put it out there in front of everybody, right, that the company's worth this. Right. And that, Matt, you might be worth this. And, you know, I don't pay attention to those numbers. The real, reality is I focus on – how do I dominate my day-to-day? How do I help our company grow and win today? Money follows success. It's not the other way around. So I very rarely look at any money I have or money our profit. Our company, like, someone's like, are you focused on the profits? I said, I'm focused on winning. I'm focused on dominating our competition. I'm focused on taking care of my team members and my clients. And when you do those things, you make a lot of money. Success is the, is, is the focus. Money follows. And so the fact that I'm worth X dollars or whatever it may be that they put out there, it's, it's cool to see, you know, on paper for a second, and then you go right back to the grind and say, you know, I'm not spending that money. My life has not changed one inch since we went going public. I'm still here at 4 in the morning. I'm still grinding until 630 at night. I still love what I do. Nothing's changed. And so, therefore, to me, it's not a big deal. But at the same time, I know it gets a lot of headlines and people talk to me about it. I get more people talking to me about that stuff than they used to, obviously. Um, so that's been a little change in my life. Let's talk a little bit about your business model and how different that is from some of the other lenders people might be more familiar with uh, in the sense that you don't work directly with consumers. You're a wholesale uh, mortgage underwriter. Tell us a little bit about that model and what some of the challenges are associated with that. Yeah, so we don't have a name brand recognition as the number one lender or even number three or four or five, but we're number two overall lender, and this is how we think about it, is our business is the exact same as everyone else's. The difference is we're wholesale, which means we offer lower rates, and you have to get our rates through an independent mortgage broker. Mortgage brokers offer lower rates and fees to consumers. It's, it's not my opinion. It's fact. It's backed up by data after data after data point that if you go alone to a you know, mortgage broker at findamortgagebroker.com or wherever you may go to find a local mortgage broker, you will get lower rates. And so what we've done is we provided, and that's always been the case, so you know, Barry, the difference is, it's always been the case you get lower rates, but what's changed is we've, we've enabled them with technology. So what we've done with our mortgage brokers, there's 50,000 loan officers throughout the country. You have to get a loan through a loan officer. They're either captive to one lender or they're independent. We work with the independents and say, hey, use our rates, use our technology, and we'll make it so you can compete with the biggest lenders in the world. And that's what we've done. And that's why our business has exploded is that we've basically democratized technology. We've enabled the mortgage brokers to succeed and thrive by giving them, of course, the lowest, lowest rates. But beyond the lowest rates, it's the best technology and fastest process to close. Because, you know, I'm in an interesting industry. Nobody wants my product. Nobody wants a mortgage. They want to buy the house. They have to get a mortgage to do it. They want to save the money. they got to get a mortgage. We're selling a product nobody wants. We've got to make it faster, easier, cheaper. And that's what we've done with mortgage brokers. Hmm. Really quite interesting. So I'm a little curious. What are the advantages of being a non-bank lender versus a banking lender like Wells and City, is it the ability to work with independent um, mortgage brokers? What, what advantages does your structure give you? Yeah, so being a non-bank lender, a lot of people think, oh, that means you have less compliance, less regulatory. I argue the reverse. I have more compliance, more regulatory. I mean, I got to deal with 50 individual states. When you're a federally chartered bank, you got to deal with one, right? You don't have to deal with each state level stuff. We have more compliance and more regulatory things, I think, in a lot of respects. The big advantage, and one of the things that I think about building wealth and building success is the reason I can beat those companies and the reason we have beat those companies is extreme focus. I'm not trying to be the best bank. I'm not trying to be the best everything. I'm trying to be the best mortgage lender. 
all we do is dominate the mortgage process. We're a big company, smart companies, Chase, Wells Fargo, these are great companies, obviously, but they got to do deposits. They got to do credit cards. They got to do boat loans. They got to do, they got to do a bunch of things. And therefore, they're not extremely focused. I'm extremely focused. I got 9,300 people that focus on being the best wholesale mortgage lender in the country. And we have no question on what we're trying to do every day. And so I think singular focus is a huge advantage. And if I was a bank, that's one thing that I probably wouldn't be able to do because they, they want you to diversify in different respects. But the right. thing is, a mortgage is not like this little thing you're doing. This is a huge part of someone's life. And dominating on that, it's like, it's like the way I would explain it is like the Wells Fargo's and Chase's and these big companies, they have to be you know, a general doctor, like you're your general practitioner, right? They're your doc- but I'm the, I'm the heart surgeon. When you, you, when you get a heart surgery, you don't go to your main doctor. You actually want to go to your heart, the, the best heart person in the country, and that's what a mortgage is. You only do it once every three or four years. You want to get the best in the country, and that's what mortgage brokers are, and that's what UWM does. So, so let's hold aside the big banks like City and Wells and J.P. Morgan. What, what's your advantage when you're competing with firms like Rocket Mortgage or Quicken? How, how do you go head-to-head with the folks who are similarly like you, really focused on just underwriting mortgages? I just outwork them. It's very simple. So I outwork them, and I invest in technology. And so I love that. I love that they have a similar setup as us because we can compete head-to-head, and we find out who's better. And we believe in our model. We believe in doing right by brokers and consumers, and we have a different model, mentality than some of those other companies. Other companies are focused on, for, on profit, profit, profit. We're focused on winning, 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 and profit follows. And that's worked year over year as we've continued to grow. You know, when I took over in 2013, I think we did it, you know, or 2014, 2013 when I took over, we did about $10 billion. We did $180 billion of mortgages this past year, and we're going to do more in 2021. Wow. And everyone else is not going to. Everyone can do well when rates are really low. Some of those competitors you talked about, they are extremely focused on refinance. Once again, that's great when rates are 2%, 2.5%. It's not going to be as great when rates are 4.5%. So our business model is much more balanced, much more focused on consumers and brokers. And at the same time, I think it's much more longstanding. And you'll see that as we take over the number one spot in the coming years. So I have a ton of interest rate questions for you. We'll, we'll circle back to that in a little bit. Um, sure. I want to ask about the speed of transactions. You guys seem to have a reputation for turning things around very, very quickly. Tell us a little bit about how you were built for speed. Yeah, well, once again, mortgages nobody wants. So you got to make it faster, easier, and cheaper. And so cheaper, we already are that. That's data, and you can prove that. Faster, same thing. I, you know, a couple of our competitors, obviously one of them that you talked about earlier, Rocket, they went public and they, they touted a lot of their technology, and they've done a very nice job. Dan Gilbert's done a good job at their business and built something very successful. But, you know, they talk about technology. Well, how do you know you have the best technology? Like, what's the measurement? It's either your cost to originate, your expenses, that you can, you can make things more efficient, or you close loans fast, right? Well, the industry closed loans about 47 days. Uh, Rocket did a great job. They're closing loans in 29 days. They're better than most. We close loans in 16, 17 days here. Our technology has differentiated because we built our technology from scratch. I got about 1,300, 1,400, or actually maybe 1,250 to 1,300 technology people here at our company every single day, grinding, working hard to make proprietary technology for our clients. And so speed solves everything. You make things fast. Like if we make a mistake, we solve it fast, right? We're trying to figure out things. And so we're always focused on speed. Nobody wants the mortgage process. That you're like, well, you got to call the underwriter, find out 30 days later what's going on. It makes the process grueling and not fun when someone's trying to buy a house. And so speed is a big deal. It's tied to our technology, and that's how we've differentiated. 
Uh, uh, the house I'm calling you from now, because we're still working from home, we purchased in September 2014, and I cannot begin to tell you. I'm just laughing as you're describing it. What an ordeal it was to get a mortgage for this house. And I'm a good I have a great credit score. I'm putting a stupid amount of money down. This should have been a no-brainer, and I guess it was because everybody I was dealing with apparently had no brain. It was painful. <laughs> do, do you hear those sort of complaints? Do people tell you, like, horrible stuff? Oh, let me tell you about what a disaster my mortgage was when they meet you personally? All the time. People, people have their mortgage stories, and especially when you talk about 2014, 15, but the reality is this. People don't know how to get a mortgage. They don't know where to go. They think that you see a commercial and you go there. You call your right. bank, you go there. That, that, that's the biggest problem. So consumer education is a big focus of mine. One of the reasons we went public was to help educate consumers and get myself out on a platform. Because if you go to findamortgagebroker.com or you call 1-800-BROKERS, you do one of those things, you will find a broker in your community. They will shop on your behalf. It will be a fast, efficient, cheap process, period. I have uh, the utmost confidence in that because I see it every single day. But most consumers... They get lured into some TV ad or they hear something. Like they don't really know how to do it. And so part, that's part of my mission right now is how do we get more people to understand how to get a broker. Even if it doesn't come to UWM, go to findamortgagebroker.com. It doesn't mean it's going to come to UWM. It goes to one or the other. But if you go there, then that, 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 that professional can say, okay, Barry, what are you looking for? I'm looking to close in 30 days at a great rate. Okay, well, here's the lender I'm going to go with then. Rather than... Well, here's what we offer. It's going to take 60 days, and we're going to be a pay. Like, certain lenders are paying on certain things. Certain lenders are fast with certain things. Certain lenders cost more. They know these things. You have to go to the expert. You've got to go. It's like going to your general doctor and saying, who's the best heart surgeon? He'll refer you to the right place rather than just look it up online and say, oh, this guy says he does a good job with hearts. You know, I'm not going to that guy. It's funny because I recall using um, a mortgage broker in 20. 14, but a lot of the my Rolodex, a lot of my contact list of mortgage brokers, half these guys were out of the business. So let me circle back and ask you um, a, a great financial crisis question. You know, what was the lesson from that? And, and what did you personally learn from companies like Countrywide that had such a successful business and then blew themselves up? What we learned is quality always wins. And so I want to be the biggest, but I'm not going to ever sacrifice being the best. We are the best mortgage company in America, and we, we're proud of that. Our technology, our service, our pricing, everything is the best. But we are not the biggest. We are number two right now. But I will never – I'd rather be number 38, as competitive as I am, than sacrifice the quality of what we do. So what happened in the past, and I don't know Angelo, Mozilla, and Countrywide that well. Um, all I know is I study things and see what people have done. I know that the type of loans we do – is the key. And people focus on, like, oh, well, I could, do more. I could do more loans right now. Right now, I could maybe I could be number one if I, if I open my credit box to do loans for people that maybe are a little bit more on the gray area. We at our company believe in long-term success, not short-term. And we're, gonna, we're playing the long game. And so we're going to focus on doing the right things because I'm going to be here running it. I'm gonna, I still own 94%. Someone said, oh, well, your, your shareholders. I go, my shareholders, I have one and a half billion shares. I'm the biggest shareholder. I promise you I'm doing everything best for the shareholders all the time because I'm, I'm the biggest one. We're all on the same team. But that does not mean what's best for shareholders or best for anyone is to do something crazy in third quarter 2021 that we'll pay for in 2024. And I think that's what happened in the past in the mortgage industry is people got a little bit focused on greedy, got maybe a little greedy, maybe got a little over their skis on certain things. That's not going to happen at UWM. Huh. 
Really quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on with rates today. Um, and obviously, we have to look back at what took place last year. How did the pandemic impact home sales and prices? And, and when did you first start to see things uh, in the mortgage market that, hey, things are getting a little uh, wacky out here? Yeah, you know, obviously, after the, the pandemic or when the pandemic you know, first started back in March of last year, um, you know, a lot of crazy things are happening. Rates dropped because the Fed was buying, you know, um, a lot of mortgage-backed securities. A lot of things happened that people were not expecting. Um, it all kind of settled down. It's still buying a lot of mortgage, and rates were extremely low for the second half of last year. 30-year fixed in the twos, which is never seen before, right? And so 30-year fixed rates in the twos uh, was what was common. And the crazy thing is it's still common today. It's still happening. And so rates dropped, and I, I, I think they got as low as 25 30-year fixed, 2 and 3 30-year fixed. So if you're getting a conventional loan, you should be getting 25 2 and 3 But then rates went up a little bit this year. And, and everyone says, oh, rates have went up. Everyone's going to slow down. Well, rates are still 2.875. <laughs> you know, they're still all-time lows. And so anyone that didn't take advantage of it still can take advantage of it today. People that are buying homes, which is a big deal right now because that's a big percentage of our business, they're actually taking advantage of that, hey, that $350,000 house I can actually buy with 2.875 interest rate rather than 35 or 4%, which is actually giving them a great uh, opportunity to buy a house that maybe they couldn't buy because rates are so low. So rates are extremely low right now. They, I believe they're going to stay low through the rest of this year, um, but they are going to tick up, and they have ticked up a little bit so far. So banks are known for making money on the spread, and that spread gets wider the higher rates are, which raises the question, how hard is it to make money on a 30-year mortgage with rates under 3%? How, uh, what does that do to your profit margin as an underwriter and a wholesaler? You know, it doesn't really impact it much. So, it, it, you know, we're not, we're not portfolioing these loans. These loans are being securitized with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginny Mae. And so whether the rate's 2875 or 3875, the difference in what we make is not is negligible. It's the same thing. And so I'd actually make an argument, the reverse, that as rates go up, you make less because there's less loans out there. So people are competitively pricing their loans or making, trying to squeeze their margins to get more business rather than make more money. And so when rates are low is actually when people make a good amount of money on, on the loans because there's so many loans out there, people don't have to be as price well. And that's why it's so important to go to a broker, because if you go to some lender, you don't know. Like, you're not in the business, Barry. You don't know if three and an eighth is the right rate or 2.75. You don't know. But the mortgage broker will know, and he'll say, oh, no, you're actually 2.75, and here's the lender that we can sell it to and work with on it. And so I think that's an important thing, is that as rates go up, it does not mean you make more money. It's actually, I could make an argument that's the reverse in many respects. Hmm. So, so let's say rates go uh, over 4% at some point in the future. And right now, where are we? 50% of people have mortgages with rates under 4%. What does that mean for the volume of new originations? And what does that mean for refinancings? Yeah, it's going to slow it down substantially. And that's actually going to be the part that helps UWM, my company, become the number one overall lender because we are not dependent. The number one lender right now does about 93% of their business is refinance. Really? So, yeah, it's great when rates are 2875. What happens when they're 3875? Well, there's going to be a lot less refinance. It already slowed a lot of people down. If you follow uh, you know, our earnings call and, and, uh, the, and the number one lender, Rocket, they, they guided to do 15 to 20% less business in the second quarter than they did the first quarter because rates went up just from 25 to 2.875. I guided the reverse. I said, we're going to do more business in the second quarter than the first quarter. And so the point is, when you're doing purchases, and you're, like, our business is not as cyclical. And so rates 
a lot of mortgage companies are strictly refinance shops. Well, that's great in a 2020 boom year, but what about a 2022 rising rate year? How are you going to live? How are you going to survive? How are you going to succeed? And that's why we're excited about the opportunity. So when rates do go up, we'll, we'll win in a low-rate environment. When rates go up, that's actually when our, the, the power of our business really shines. When cybercriminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. That's really interesting. So... In terms of those refinancings, how aggressively are people tapping the equity in their homes compared to, I don't know, mid 2000s, 05, 06? Is this really that large a driver? If someone says 92% of their business is refis, that seems to be really cyclical and, and rate sensitive. It is. You got it. You're exactly right. There is some that's cash out. And people tapping the equity of their house is probably a little less rate sensitive. But. It's still rate sensitive. You know, no one's going to, people, you know, and, and obviously housing values have gone up, so there is a little equity in people's houses. But the reality is this if your business is 90 plus percent anything, you're probably going to be in a tougher position, especially if it's something you don't control, which is the rates. Nobody controls the rates. I can't keep rates low, neither can the other lenders. You know, you've got you you to live with whatever rates are, and you've got to make the best out of it. And so if your business is too one-focused one on, real, oh, we really win when low rates happen, well, what happens when high rates happen? Right, and and that's going to happen, right? Even for, and to the point that you made earlier, even if rates don't go high from what you and I would think of as high, which is five, six, seven percent, right. relatively, things go to three and a half. It will stop the refinances because that means that almost everyone. There's no reason to refinance if you have a three and a quarter percent rate or two point eight seven five. So many people have a thirty-year fixed in the twos right now that they're not going to be refinancing into a three and a half. So therefore, the only time you really need to divorce uh, a refinance is a divorce or a cash out, and people aren't going to cash out and pay a higher interest rate unless they really need the cash out of their house. Huh. Interesting. You, you mentioned home prices ticking up. I keep reading lots and lots of people claiming it's a bubble. Uh, what are your thoughts on these increased home prices? Is it just limited supply, limited inventory, or is there something else going on here? Yeah, so it's limited inventory, but partially because, remember, we're, in, we're still th- finishing up this pandemic or getting through a pandemic where, you know, there's over a million consumers right now that aren't making payments on their mortgage, so they're in forbearance. Well, what does that mean? Well, if I'm not making a payment on my mortgage, I'm probably not selling my house. It's a pretty good deal I got going right now, right? And so people aren't selling at the pace that they should be. When that changes, I think there will be a lot more inventory hitting the market. Now, is it a bubble? No, it's not a bubble. It's not, well, depending on how you define a bubble. Do I think housing values should be going up 10% a year? Absolutely not. I think they go up 1% to 3% a year, and that will be more normalized. It's not like 2008. Someone said to me, it's just like 2008. I said, it's not like 2008. You don't know what you're talking about. It's nothing like 2008. 2008 was a bubble bigger than this one, but it was built on a 
a horrible cracked foundation in the mortgage industry. The mortgage industry is not like that. People were getting loans when they didn't even qualify for back then. So when, and they're also doing adjustable rates, so then their rate went up. You had to sell, and the whole thing collapsed. That's not happening right now. I'm sure of that. What is happening is that the $330,000 house today that maybe should only be worth three twenty dollars because it's kind of went up faster than you expected, should you still buy it at three thirty? dollars you probably should because, you know, unless you're only going to be there for less than a year or two, because housing values is not going to go from 330 down to 290. Maybe it's 330 and it's 332 next year, and 334 the following year doesn't go up fast, but you're still getting in at a 2.875 interest rate. So people thinking that this whole thing's going to collapse, they just don't know what they're talking about. They're just not right. Right. You've got to focus on the cost to carry, not what you are actually paying. But, but that raises the interesting question. You mentioned adjustable rate mortgages. I'm kind of surprised to see a lot of ads for ARMS. Uh, when rates are this low, what, what are your thoughts on, on people who are underwriting a ton of uh, adjustable mortgages these days? Yeah, so adjustable rate mortgages these days are much different than back then. Now, we don't do very many at all. Actually, I, I could almost say we do zero because it's, it's not even a point uh, uh, one of a percent of what we do. But we'll call it, we don't really do them. We have it on the rate sheet and it's available. But here's what I think about ARMS. ARMS are different today than back then. Back then it was two-year ARMS, 228, right. with prepayment penalties. And the rates went up like a half percent, I mean, excuse me, multiple percent per year or per adjustment period. These arms today are done through Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. It's, it's with the CFPB, what they've done. They are much safer arms. However, 30-year fixed in the twos, unless you're selling in the next two or three years, how are you not taking a 30-year fix at 2.875, right? And so people, you know, I, most people are doing fixed rates. Um, I think sometimes people are um, market arms, and that's part of the problem with why people don't go. They go to these big commercials. You see someone talking about arms or adjustable rate more. You see a, a teaser rate of two and a quarter. You go, oh, I want two and a quarter. Well, you call them. You find out it's an arm. You find out it's a three-year arm or five-year arm, not really what you want. And then you end up staying with them and getting a 30-year fix at a three and three-eighths, and you don't even know the difference that you should have got 2.75. And that's part of the... The, the issue with going to a mortgage broker rather than going to these big lenders. So let's talk a little bit about the state of the national housing market. What are your thoughts here? It seems like the underwriting has become much more, let's call it circumspect or conservative, than it was a decade or two ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a decade or two ago, it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, responsible lending. There's some things that happened back then that were not the right way. I think there's a lot of rules in place now. Uh, it's a very strong foundation of the mortgage industry right now. There's not these shake, shakier loans being given. Like the way I, is, you want to help everyone get a house if they want a house, but you got to make sure that they meet all the criteria. They have the income, they have a job, the house is worth what they say it's worth. Right? There's a lot of things you have to do. And back then, there's a lot, uh, I don't know the right word, is flimsier rules, crazier rules, rules that were not responsible lending. Right now, responsible lending, it's not hard to get a mortgage right now if you qualify. If you, have, if you pay your bills on time and you have a job and you make income, mortgages are easy to get. You've got to you know, find the right person to help you get it. But it, it's not if you, you know, you're self-employed and you don't show any income, well, it's a little different now. You, you actually got to prove that you make the income. Everyone wants proof that you can pay your mortgage. Right. So I just want to make sure I'm checking the right boxes. If you want a mortgage, you have to have a job, you have to have a credit history, and the house has to be worth what you're paying for it. These are like crazy restrictive rules. I mean, who, who could <laughs> exactly. buy a house under those? What, what's so amazing, because what you're saying is so obvious and self-evident, but how on earth did we ever go off the rails in the mid-2000s where uh, you don't need a job, you don't need a credit history, and who cares what the house is worth? 
that seems just absolutely insane. Yeah, well, that, that, it, it, greed got in the way. People started, you know, one-upping each other, trying to think, and, and, and they didn't understand the consequences. The whole American you know, world, or all, really the whole world, learned. And so now everyone understands it and respects that housing drives the economy in such a way that people don't, and to, to mess up or break housing um, is, not, is not a way that's going to win long-term. And that's what happened. People got greedy. People got, were trying to make money. Things weren't working well. They were kind of one-upping each other on products and nuances and and the whole thing kind of fell apart, and I don't think that I don't think I'll see that happen again in my lifetime. Does it mean that there won't be some gray area stuff going on? I'm sure there will be, but it's not going to be at that extreme. So, so you mentioned earlier you're going to see volume drop when rates run up for some of the other mortgage underwriters. Uh, what happens to their underwriting standards when they see their their revenue drop and their volume drop? Do they start to get stupid again, or or have they learned their lesson from? You know, two thousand eight oh nine. Well, so good, great question. And yes, they will start to get. I don't know if the right word is stupid or riskier or a little bit more. But because of the what the CFPB did and a guy named Richard Corder and some people, they put in some rules that basically restrict your ability to ever doing it to the extremes. I'm not saying people can't get in some of the gray areas, but on a mass scale, the extremes, such as back to our earlier joke or comment about no income, no job, here's a loan like that. That, that can't be done anymore, right? That can't be done anymore. And so, therefore, there are some rules in place that it's just really not going to be on a mass scale that you can get those things done. And so I'm not concerned. Do lenders lower their standards? Absolutely, I'm sure they do um, when rates go up. But at the same time, it's not going to be able to be lowered to put the American economy at risk like it did last time. So I know the, the GSEs, the government-sponsored entities like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, focus mostly on the conforming world, traditional mortgages. What about what's become a very big segment, the, the jumbo mortgage market? How do you see that developing? Do you guys play in that space? Um, tell us a little bit about, because I know the real estate, it's been growing very rapidly. What do you guys do in terms of jumbo mor- mortgages, and how do you see that space? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a space we do a lot of business, and we do billions of dollars a month of it. So we're doing a lot of business in jump, but that's those loans are put twenty percent down, seven forty FICO, good credit score. People once again, the, the 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 principles that we talked about, where they have to have a job, they have to show their income, they have to prove it. And a lot of these people are self-employed, and they actually have to show it on their tax returns in order to qualify for one of these loans. And so, the, that's those are good solid loans, and those are good solid borrowers, and those are people you want to be able to serve so that they can buy a house. Hmm. Really, really, really intriguing. Um... So a recent Wall Street Journal edition had a column, Real Estate Shows Tech is No Holy Grail. What are your thoughts on, on these so-called iBuyers, these tech companies that offered almost like a used car, hey, we'll buy your house um, directly from you. You don't have to list it for sale. you have any thoughts on, on that growing industry? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I like that people are trying to innovate in the residential mortgage space, residential housing space. The reality is this. There's, you got to always follow the money, right? Why is someone doing that? They're buying your house today because they're probably buying it below what it actually should be selling for, right? And is that best for you? Is it, is it that hard to sell a house these days? You know, so I guess my perspective is I'm not going to call them gimmicks because I'm sure there's obviously some substantiated strong businesses. But the reality is, you know, those things aren't going to become the mass. Right, there's, 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 
different reasons they're doing it. Everyone's trying to make money in there, and if there's a gap, there's an arbitrage there that, hey, you want to sell your house for 300 I'll buy it for 290 today, so you don't have to worry about it. You can go buy another house, and I'll try to sell it for 305 They're trying to make an arbitrage right there anyways. And so do I think they're longstanding? Maybe. Do I think they're gimmicks? Yes. Do I think that they're going to be mass scale? No. Hmm. That, that's really kind of interesting. And, and I want to just touch on, on the fact that you guys went public via a SPAC. Tell us a little bit about what that process was like. What, why did you decide that was the right way to go public? Yeah, so we obviously are large enough and successful enough. You know, a lot of people think SPAC, oh, SPAC must be uh, a questionable company. And that's not anything like I mean, we, we, we made $3.3 billion in profit last year. So we went public through a SPAC because we chose that instead of an IPO. We chose that because we felt that was a better process for us for numerous reasons. We also got partnered with uh, Alec Gores in the Gores Group, and Alec did a great job and his team. You know, the way I think about it is this. I'm going public. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going public again. So how do you go public in the most efficient way possible while having someone ride shotgun and kind of advise you? And that's what Alec Gores and his team did. And so we felt that the going public through a SPAC was a better option for us than an IPO. And I would do it again the same way. Now, uh, you know, certain, every company's kind of different. Obviously, we're the largest SPAC of all time. And, uh, but I don't look at it based on valuations. I look at it as what's the best way to do this. And I looked at both options. And although everyone in the world tells you that IPO seems like a better option because that's what everyone's always done, but I don't live that way. I don't live on what everyone's always done it. What's the best way? And we found that this was the best way, and, and I think I chose correctly. So what sort of guidance have you gotten in terms of how to handle suddenly you're the CEO of a public company? Have you gotten any good advice about that, or, or who have you been speaking to about it? No, you know, I, I haven't, you know, focused my time on, like, what I say, and there's a saying in business, like, what got you here won't get you there. And my perspective is what got me here will get me there. I'm going to stay in the weeds of my business. I'm not going to change what I do. I'm going to continue to take care of, running our company for our team members, our clients, shareholders, which I always ran it for shareholders. The difference was shareholders were only me back then. But now I got everybody in my company as a shareholder, along with a lot of people in the public, which we're excited about as well. But take care of your team members, take care of your clients, take care of your, you know, the end consumer, and at the same time, take care of your shareholders. And so nothing has really changed in my business running daily. We obviously have more people on investor relations, and we got people on financial side that are doing things. But running the business day-to-day, I've not changed what I'm doing, uh, and a lot of investors back when we, when we were doing this back and people were in our roadshow were investing in us, they wanted me to keep doing what I'm doing because that's what they were buying into. They were buying into our success and how we got to where we're at and how we're going to get to where we're going. Huh. So what are the plans for all that capital that you uh, raised? How do you want to deploy that? The big focus is, one, technology, continue to invest in technology. We have done that, and we're continuing to innovate with that. Second thing is we're investing in servicing. Right, we, 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 require, we, we create this servicing asset that's very um, profitable and successful. I used to have to sell it to bring in cash. Now I don't have to sell it. I still can sell it if the right opportunity is there, but I don't need to sell. Now I can want to sell. It's a big difference. Huh. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This has been really fascinating stuff. We have been speaking with Matt Ishbia. He is the CEO of United Wholesale Mortgage. They are the country's largest wholesale lender and number two overall mortgage lender. Um, I wish we could have done this in person. I get the sense that you are just a very animated, uh, excited 
individual, and I get the sense your enthusiasm is totally infectious, and I could see why you've been so successful running the company. Uh, well, thank you. I really enjoyed being part of it. Appreciate you, and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. Thanks to Matt Ishbia for being so generous with his time. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 400 discussions we've done over the past six years, seven years. Oh, my God. Time time disappears. Um, you can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Bloomberg.com, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. Give us a review over at Apple iTunes. You can sign up for my daily reading list. That's at Ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column. That's at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. Paris Wald is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.